Good morning. Let me try that again. Good morning. All right. Welcome. Welcome. Hey, we are, I hope you have good plans for tomorrow. Uh, we're going to go look at the balloons down in the springs. That's always a lot of fun, but I hope you're, you're uh, planning on being together with others that you can love on and enjoy, but also maybe even witness to and share the love of Jesus with. Hey, we began a new series last week going through all 16 chapters of the book of Mark together. We looked at last uh, at chapter 1 last week and uh, not only chapter 1 but some of the introductory or background information for the chapter as well. If you missed that, you can get online and hear that if you wish. But um, but today I want to look at chapter 2 of this awesome book, uh, this gospel of Jesus as we go through it together. Now I cannot adequately cover all of the amazing material in in a single chapter of the book of Mark in one sermon, but I'm going to do my best to each week to pray and ask God to help me figure out what part of each individual chapter, you know, one chapter over the next 16 weeks or 16 chapters, what part of that chapter we need to dwell on and focus on. But as I hopefully communicated to all of you that got the email, if you're not on our church email list, by the way, all you got to do is write your name and email down on one of the cards that are in your bulletin there that's perforated, turn that in and we'll add you to that. But as I tried to say in an email to everybody this week, I want to ask you to prepare your hearts and get into the chapter that we're going to look at, today being chapter 2, and get into that and ask God to speak to your heart as well, and even help you in terms of showing you the parts of that chapter that I won't have time to get into, but God wants to speak to all of us through His Word together today, and I hope you're excited and eager to hear His word today. So um, I'd like to ask if you would, if you have your Bible, to turn to Mark chapter 2. That's another thing I sent in that email. Uh, if you have a personal Bible, I think it's always best to bring your own and enjoy looking at that and getting familiar with it, maybe writing some notes down, that kind of thing. But turn to that. If you don't have yours, you can find a Bible probably in the seat in front of you. You can follow along on the screen or in the bulletin as well. But as we begin this morning, would you join me by standing as we read this section of Mark chapter 2, God's holy word, and then we'll look at what he wants to say to us through it. Mark chapter 2, verse 1 says, And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Hmm. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, 
I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at, a, at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, who they, or when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Lord, as we look at your word today, would you please open our hearts? In fact, give us hearts to receive, eyes to see and ears to hear what you, through your Holy Spirit, would want each one of us today to grasp to take hold of and to apply to our life and, and go home and live out. Lord, help us to receive it with all we've got, with open hearts, with, with all we've got, and then to do our best to honor you in the details of the way we live our life from here forward, applying your word more and more every day to who we are. And we pray in Jesus' name, and everybody together said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> if you were here last week, we looked at chapter 1. And in chapter 1, and by the way, this is very, I think, foundational to, um, to build a bridge into what we are seeing and what we're reading about here in chapter 2. So I want to back up just a little bit. At the end of chapter 1, if you were here last week, you know that we saw where Jesus healed a man with leprosy. And as Jesus has done numerous other times in Scripture, Jesus at that moment, at the end of chapter 1, told the guy, hey, I know you're thankful for being healed for, by, of your leprosy, but don't tell anyone. Mum's the word. Don't go out and tell anybody about it. Now, why does Jesus sometimes do that? It's not an isolated case. He's done that a number of times. Why does he do that? Well, there are a number of ways to look at that. But bottom line, the Bible doesn't tell us definitively. But the last verse of chapter 1 does give us a pretty clear picture as to maybe why, at least part of the answer. Look at verse 45 of last week's chapter. Last verse. It says, but he, Jesus, or no, no not Jesus. He, the guy who was healed, went out and began to talk freely about it, about what had happened, and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Here, I think, is the point. Part of the reason Jesus told people to not tell in certain moments was because Jesus did not come to be Miracle Max. Remember Miracle Max? I don't know if you liked the movie The Princess Bride a couple of decades back. You know, Billy Crystal played that character. I think we got a picture of Miracle Max. Where's it at? We got that picture. There he is. Miracle Max. Do you remember him? Jesus did not come to be Miracle Max. He did not come to be Santa Claus, you know, or a genie in the bottle. He, he came to be Lord and Savior. 
Jesus plainly tells us why he came. Look at Luke chapter 19, verse 10. He said, for the Son of Man, referring to himself, for the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. He came to do a search and rescue mission, to seek and save that which was lost, which is you and me, which is all of us. That was his primary mission. He came not to be Miracle Max, but to be Lord and Savior. He performed miracles like he does here, and the many, many miracles in the book of John, the last verse of John tells us that if all the things he did and said were written down, there wouldn't be enough books to record it all. So who knows how many countless people he healed. But when he healed, he did so primarily because he is love, as God's Word tells us. He is the Word, love. He is compassionate and he cares more than we can begin to really grasp. But also, according to verse 10 that I just read for you, that we looked at together, he also healed sometimes to prove or to substantiate his claims. Look at what he said, verse 10 again, in the middle of that story. He said, but, this was to those who, weren't, who were skeptical and not believing. He said, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In other words, to prove that I am who I say I am, the Messiah, the Son of God, I will heal in this case. And sometimes Jesus told people not to tell anyone because he knew that most of us are like the rest of us in that we tend to focus on and get totally out of proportion focused on physical things, temporary things rather than eternal or, or heavenly things. And so he told people sometimes, don't go tell people because they can't handle it. You know, kind of you can't handle the truth, right? You remember that line? Sometimes people are in that boat. They're not ready. And he didn't want them to just see him as Santa Claus. He wanted them to see him as the Savior, as the Son of God. He wanted them to come to him not so that they could, you know, sit on Santa's lap and ask for another present or rub the bottle of the genie and ask for a wish. He didn't want them to think that way. He wanted them to come to him to worship Him, to honor Him, to love Him. That is what He seeks from all of us. And so we see this dynamic playing out numerous times. And as this story, this chapter begins, when He showed up in Capernaum, you see a huge crowd gathered around Him. In fact, it was so large, Mark records, that there was no room, not even at the door, which again, I would say was probably because He had done these miracles and guys like the one in chapter 1 that had been healed of leprosy were telling everybody about it even though Jesus told them sometimes not to because, because they wanted to come and see another miracle and, and they wanted to maybe be part of a miracle rather than to come and worship and adore Him and praise Him and thank Him for who He is. You know, seeking a healing, pursuing God to heal you is never, ever a bad thing. Don't miss me, misunderstand that in any way. Jesus never, including in this story here, ever condemns or comes down on anybody because they want to be healed. Not at all. He never says that's a bad thing, but He wants us to come to Him for more than just that. Healing is not a bad thing. It's just not the main thing. It's a secondary thing. It was usually a means to an end. The main thing Always, according to Jesus, when he was asked what the greatest commandment is, he said it's to love the Lord with all your heart and to love your neighbors yourself is the second thing. All the law and the prophets hang on these two things. Get these two things right and everything else will flow downstream beautifully from there. 
healing is wonderful. It's beautiful. There's nothing wrong with that. Asking God. If my wife got cancer tomorrow, I would be on my knees begging him and, and, and quoting Scripture about his promises to heal. Of course I would, but that's not our main thing in life. Anyway, verse 3. They came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, again, the crowd that wanted to see another miracle, when, he, when they could not get near him, they removed the roof above him. They cut a hole and removed the roof above his head. Now, is that creative or what? That's determination. That is assertive or aggressive. I mean, that's kind of crazy. But it was also based on great faith. Mark records that Jesus noted their great faith. I love that. Let me ask you a question. What, what are you willing, how creative, how determined are you willing to be if you perceive a wall between you and where you want to go? Especially if it's maybe between you and getting near Jesus. Well, good thing is, you don't ever have to worry about it, really. Um, not at all. You don't need to be concerned about having a hard time getting near Jesus. James tells us, come near to God and He will come near to you. Today, in contrast to the day that this story took place, Jesus is now omnipresent. He was not at that point. He chose to limit Himself and be in a human body like you and I. And so if you wanted to be near Jesus, there might be a crowd that would, become, that would come between you and Him. It might be hard to get to Him. Not so today. Praise God. Jesus is everywhere at every moment, all the time. And He wants us to know that we can come near to Him without ever having to worry about it. Let me ask you this. Have you ever felt maybe kind of a little bit bashful? Like, I, I've talked to people who've been in this boat. Like, like oh, I want to be close to Jesus. I want to talk to Him. I want to come to Him in prayer. But sometimes I almost feel like I have to go to the door and knock like, excuse me, Jesus, you know, is it okay? Do you have time for me? You know, as if he might be too busy, as if he might have other things that are a higher priority. Maybe he's taking a nap or something along that line. But you know what? That is never the case. You know what Jesus told us in Revelation? We don't have to come to his door and knock and hope that he'll be available. He comes to our door and knocks. He, he said, behold, I stand at your door or the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus doesn't expect us to worry about that. He didn't want us to be concerned about, does he have time for us? He always does. I love that. Come near to God and God will come near to you, James tells us. Verse 4, verse 4, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay, and when Jesus saw their faith, he acknowledges that they had great faith, and I love that because it reminds me that Jesus is not looking for us to have our ducks in a row. You don't have to have all your stuff together to come to Jesus. He, he wants us to know that we can come to him. And that as long as we come in faith, that he is pleased, he is thrilled to have us come near him with our hands wide open and with our hearts wide, wider open, more open. He said to the paralytic, yeah, I said that wrong, didn't I? Your hands wide open or your heart open wider. How's that? Is that better? <laughs> anyway, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven isn't it, wouldn't it be awesome if that was the end of the story? Because that's really what matters more than anything else. His sins have been forgiven. That's the, the pinnacle of his need. Now, I think it's safe to assume that this man and his four friends, very clearly from Scripture, were mostly focused on and concerned at the moment 
for physical healing. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong. The Bible tells us that if you are in need healing, come to the elders and ask them to anoint you with oil and pray over you. And, the, you know, and, and we do that all the time as a church. There's nothing wrong with pursuing and asking God for healing. But isn't it awesome that how in this story, even though that's what they were focused on, Jesus, first of all, went to the greater need. He saw the bigger need, which was the need for forgiveness of sin. That ultimately is what really matters. And Jesus sometimes looks beyond what we ask for and looks for what we actually truly need most, and He meets us even there. That's how incredible His love is. I love that about Him. Jesus is that amazing. This story is so cool, and yet this story takes a kind of sad twist at this point. Most stories do that, or a lot of stories do, don't they? You know, verse 6 says, Now some of the scribes, which a.k.a. means the religious leaders um, of that day. There's another group that Jesus often tangled with called Pharisees, another group Sadducees, and they had different roles. But the scribes in this case were the ones that were sitting there, and the Bible says they were questioning in their hearts. In other words, they were not uttering these things out loud. This was something they were contemplating in their mind. Ironically, not just one of them, but apparently as a group they tended to do this. But their question in their heart was, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And ironically, their answer was, I mean, what they implied. They're right. No one. No one can forgive sins but God alone. And yet again, the ironic part is they were looking at God in the flesh he was standing there, sitting there maybe right in front of them, and they did not see him. Ah, oh, it's heartbreaking. It's so sad. How many of us maybe have been in the presence of Almighty God and not realized or had opportunity to come near to him and missed it? God tells us in 2 Corinthians to walk by faith, not by sight. And yet, interestingly, I was thinking about that this week. These Pharisees chose not to put faith in God, obviously, or in Jesus, not at all, put no faith in Jesus, and yet they also even chose to ignore what they did see with their eyes. So they didn't walk by faith or by sight. They missed on both accounts. Oh, there's a lot of lessons to learn from those who set good examples for us, but there are also lessons to learn from these who Jesus loved just as much as you and I, but that missed the boat, missed the mark. Verse 8, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that, that they thus questioned within themselves, which, by the way, yes, that does mean he can read our minds. He, he can and does read our minds, which can be a little bit intimidating, right? I mean, you think about it like, wow, every thought, the things that not even my wife or whoever, nobody knows, Jesus knows all of that. Yeah, that can be intimidating, but it can also be super comforting because we can pause and remember, He knows all about us, and yet He loves us anyway. That stuff you don't want anybody to know, Jesus knows, and He loves you anyway. Isn't that awesome? Praise God. You know, as a little side note, think about Judas. It's one of his disciples that walked with him, that followed him, that spent time with him, you know. All the things that happened over Jesus' three and a half year ministry or so, Judas was there. And Jesus, it's not like, it's not like when Judas betrayed him, Jesus was like, oh, didn't see that coming. Not, not, of course not. He knew what was happening. He knew what was in the works. He knew that Judas had been taking, dipping out of 
the funds and taking money for himself. And yet, do you notice? Jesus never kicked Judas to the curb. I mean, if you or I had been in Jesus' shoes and we knew where Judas was headed, where that story was going, do you think you'd have had the same compassion? Do you think, do you think you'd have given him as many opportunities as Jesus did? I, I probably would not, but that's Jesus for you. That's how great his love is. He loved Judas like he loved the Pharisees, like he loved his own beloved or blessed mother, like he loved the soldiers who crucified him, whom... He said, oh, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. He loved all of these like he loved Mother Teresa or like he loved Billy Graham or like he loves whoever you think is at the top of the, you know, the scale of loving him. He doesn't just love those who love him. He loves all of us. Praise God. He never looks at any of us as like, oh, you don't, you're not good enough for me to love. I love that about him. The greatest thing in this whole world is the matchless love of Jesus. Amen? Come on. The greatest thing in the whole world is the matchless love of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, time out. Think about that question. I think that's a trick question. I don't mean to say Jesus made it a trick question, but it can be looked at two different ways. Think about that. I mean, it's a trick question in that, yes, of course, on one end, I would guess most of you would think this way with me, the natural thought is, well, duh, of course it's easier to say someone's sins are forgiven than to say, get up and walk, because if you do that and they can't get up and walk, then you're going to be seen to be a fraud, you know, just like that. So it's, of course, easier to say your sins are forgiven. But on the other side of the coin, wait a minute, no. If you talk about really getting it done, it's way easier to heal somebody than it is to really forgive sins. I mean, who can heal, forgive sins except God alone? Even the Pharisees acknowledged only God can do that. So on one hand, it's easier to say the words, you know, your sins are forgiven, than it is to heal. But really, in reality, it is easier to heal a person than it is to truly forgive sins. Only God Almighty can do that. I mean, think about today. We have thousands of people capable of healing, if you will, at least in the sense that they are licensed to do never-before-seen never or imagined surgeries that heal or that save life. I mean, think about this crowd that was there that day. If they were somehow magically like Star Trek, you know, beamed to our, you know, like time travel, they're brought to the 21st century and they saw what happens in our, you know, hospitals today, those would all be absolute miracles to them. What, what, what doctors can do today is miraculous in some respects, at least from a vantage point that they would have come from. And who knows what doctors will do tomorrow. But, but while physical Healing is amazing, and praise God, it still happens. God does amazing things today. I've seen incredible miracles that God does in that context. But praise God, nobody, no doctor, no one other than God Almighty will ever be able to forgive anybody's sin and heal somebody's soul permanently. And that is what we should mostly be focused on and impressed by. Jesus clearly cared about this man's physical condition as he does all of ours as well. But as always, he cared way more about their spiritual condition than he did the physical. 
And he forgave this man's sins first because of it. But because of their skepticism and uh, their struggle to understand, he then said, as I already mentioned, verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In other words, so that you will understand the main thing, that I am who I say I am. I am the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ. So that you'll know that, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he immediately rose, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Never. And yet again, do you think that they were as amazed about the fact that his sins had been forgiven? Or do you th- I mean, I don't know, but I, I, think, I think it's pretty fair to say they were probably amazed by the fact that he had been physically healed, which is a beautiful thing. But shouldn't a changed soul be a bigger deal for all eternity? Sins to be forgiven. Isn't that the biggest deal? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, God tells us, fix your eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. We need to focus on the eternal, invisible things, even though our eyeballs naturally gravitate toward things that we can see, touch, taste, smell, and all that. Here's, here's a key point. I think maybe one of the most important points out of this whole chapter right here, that is this. We need to make sure we seek God's presence more than we seek His presence. If you don't know what I mean, look at the screen. Seek His presence more than His presence. That's so important. All right, verse 13 continues. And he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. Again, because they were impressed by the miracles. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, setting, sitting in a, in, uh, at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Again, probably immediately, apparently. Again, that was the key word last week if you were here. You know, euthios, the Greek word, immediately. We need to do things immediately as Levi set an example for us again here. Just as he called the two sets of brothers last week in chapter 1, you know, Peter and Andrew and then James and John, he now calls Levi, which a.k.a. also could be known as Matthew, one and the same. Matthew is his later given Christian name. And he, of course, later wrote the book of Matthew. But anyway, he calls Levi to come and follow him. And just as the first four disciples did last week as we looked at, Matthew immediately gets up and follows him as well. And that is amazing. I mean, the faith that that took is incredible. We've got to really pause and understand that. You know, as a side note, I think it's important for you to know that this man was a wealthy tax collector who worked for the Romans. This is important background information about Levi. He worked specifically for Herod Antipas. His job was to collect taxes from the citizens as well as all the merchants passing through the town. Capernaum, where they are at, was a customs post on the caravan route between Damascus to the northeast and to the Mediterranean Sea out to the west. And tax collectors were expected to collect a certain amount of tax and give that to Rome, but it was also expected that they would take more than what they really had to, so as, you know, whatever they determined appropriate, whatever they needed for their salary, and so they generally overcharged and kept a lot of the profits. And so, like most tax collectors, this one, Levi, later known as Matthew, was probably hated by most of the Jews. But by earthly standards, hey, at least he was rich, which some people would say that's all that matters, right? 
Apparently not. Because look at what happens next. So, I mean, for what he did to leave everything behind is, is an amazing example for us. But in faith, he did just that. He left behind material fortunes in order to gain a spiritual fortune. I love that. Reminds me of the quote by Jim Elliott. Told the story before about the martyred missionary to uh, the Indians in Ecuador decades ago who just before giving his life to try to share the love of Jesus with those who desperately needed him. Uh, he was quoted to say, he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep for what he cannot lose. Isn't that awesome? Think about the profound impact Levi's radical obedience made on the world. I mean, it obviously turned his own life upside down in a good way, 180 degrees. But think about the millions, maybe hundreds of millions, maybe even billions of people that have read his book book of Matthew, the first book in our, in our New Testament. And of, course, and of course, all those back in the day that were eyewitnesses to his life, that saw him leave behind the tax collecting and, and the money and all of that and go and follow Jesus and become poor for the sake of being a fisherman of men. Think of the example that, and, and think of, th that's just those that were directly impacted by Matthew. Think about all those that were indirectly impacted by his example. Maybe the, the gentleman who saw Matthew do what he did or read about it last week in, in the book of Matthew and, and are challenged and motivated by what they see in the life of this man, and then that man goes home and leads his wife to the Lord and his daughter and his son, and eventually they grow up and they raise children that love the Lord and grandchildren and so forth because of, of what Matthew did. If you trace it backwards, my point is this. Friends, don't ever underestimate the power of your witness and what God can do through you as just one individual person. Don't ever think that you're just one person. What does one person really matter? What can one person really do? Matthew or Levi was one person who honored God with all he had. I mean, who was fully, radically, and completely surrendered to Jesus. And God can do amazing beyond imagination, in fact, miracles through one person if you are willing to be totally, completely sold out to Him. And you know what? You may never even see what that looks like with your own eyes, at least not till you get to heaven. I mean, think about Levi. I mean, he could never. As a human being, there's no way he could have imagined what our 21st century world is like and how many countless millions of people have been touched by his story and his pursuit of Jesus. He couldn't have begun to imagine that. In the same way, again, friends, don't ever underestimate what God might want to do through you. Through you as one individual person. Another thing to note about this encounter with Levi is that Jesus did not casually invite Levi he directly spoke to him. He clearly called Levi. And in the same way Jesus is calling us today, he makes demands in our lives as well. Let me ask you, do you hear his voice? Imagine this. Imagine Jesus walks through those doors today. Well, first of all, if he came in the room and we all recognized him, of course, I would sit down and beg him, of course, to come up here and take the microphone and speak to us. But, but let's say he comes in incognito and you are the only person who recognizes him. Okay, just you. And he comes in and sits down beside you. And he listens and he hears this part of the message. What might he turn and whisper to you, into your ear and say, Hey, 
here's what I want from you. What might he call you to leave behind as he called Matthew to leave all of that behind? What might he say that he wants from you as he clearly spoke to Matthew that day? Well, verse 15 continues, as he reclined at the table or at table in his house, meaning Jesus reclined at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. You know, sometimes Scripture notes that Jesus, often it notes that he hung out with or spent time with sinners. Sometimes you see tax collectors mentioned. Sometimes you see prostitutes, that word used. What if this Scripture were about you? What if you were there sitting with Jesus reclining at table you know, as the Scripture says, maybe it would read something like this. And as he reclined at Levi's table, many tax collectors and prostitutes and maybe liars, cheaters, gossips, drunkards, people struggling with envy, with, I, you pick, what is your sin? What might have been named if you were there? Well, you know what? I don't think it really matters because look at what happens next. Verse 16, as, as the, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners, all these different types of sinners, um, tax collectors and others, they said to, to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Wow. Is anybody else in the room thankful that God never gets to a place where he's like, you know, if you, if you reach a certain level of sin, I'm not interested in you. I don't have time for you. Is anybody thankful that God never does that? Praise God. Amen. You know, um, he loved to eat with sinners. You do the same thing. Every time you go out to eat with anybody, I don't care if it's your wife or if it's this pastor and his wife. You, if you go out to eat with anybody, you're going out to eat with sinners. You ever thought of that? with people that are struggling with things, and we're all sinners. In fact, this house, this church building, if you will, is much more for the sick than it is for the healthy. Clearly, Jesus makes that point. You know, personally, I love eating out with, you know, or hanging out with anyone who wants to talk about Jesus, whether they be, whether they be mature in their faith, you know, whether they have their ducks in a row or not, whether they have bought in and sold out or not, as long as they're at least interested in talking about who He is and considering something along the line of spiritual things. I love doing that. Whether it be like with our staff that I did this week, you know, we had a staff planning meeting. Man, I love doing that. Elder meetings are awesome. I love hanging out with them, talking spiritual things. I love my Wednesday night life group. I love the Thursday morning men's Bible study that I lead um, for any of the guys that ever want to come every Thursday, 7 a.m. Love that. I love all these kind of things, but I also love what I got to do this week, which was hang out with and talk with a couple of people that are really far from God far from God. But there was at least a, a, a glimpse of openness to how to maybe bridge that gap, a, a desire to understand or know a little bit more, as opposed to, I have zero interest. They weren't there. They, they didn't know anything. They weren't close to Him, but they were willing to listen, and I love doing that. In fact, I'll tell you what, I'd infinitely rather talk to a total pagan, you know, heathen, whatever you want to say, than the person who has a hard heart who says, I don't want to be, I don't even want to be involved in that conversation. I have no interest. You know, basically somebody who would kind of to some degree smell like a Pharisee, those that are often, you know, chastised by Jesus who, who don't want to hear, don't want to talk, don't want to be open-minded to anything Jesus would have to say. 
Ironically, the Pharisees actually loved to talk about Jesus, just not, they didn't want to talk with him. They didn't really want, except to try to trap him. And, um, you know, bottom line is I'm not looking for people that are perfect. I don't want to hang out with perfect people. You know, I'm just looking for sincere people, authentic people, people who recognize that they don't have all the answers, but that they're in tune with their need to be connected to the one who does. You know, one of my favorite groups of people who totally fit this bill that probably look a whole lot like the crowd reclining at table that day in Levi's house with Jesus is a group of people that meet here every Monday night. It was, it was Kim and I's privilege. Yeah, we're talking about Celebrate Recovery. It was my privilege, Kim and I's privilege, again on Monday night this week, this, what, six days ago, to sit in here with, I don't know, 70 or 80 people and, and worship God. I'll tell you what, if you want to be around people that really love and know how to, without being inhibited in any way, to just worship God, that's the group. It's an amazing group every Monday night. We got to hear an incredible testimony by our own Lee and Jeannie Chapin who, who spoke from their heart about the hurts and habits and hang-ups that uh, God has used the, to help them. As they've had to go through hard stuff. They've learned how to grow through what they go through, and God has helped them in great ways. And they shared a beautiful story and testimony. Tell you what, unless you're perfect, which maybe there's a few of you in here, I don't know. You should have seen the sign knowing that you're not welcomed if you're perfect. But if you're not perfect, I tell you what, you need to come check out Celebrate Recovery on Monday nights at 6 o'clock. It's an amazing ministry. And I would tell you this, I think if Jesus were walking the earth today like he did back in Mark's day, I think he'd be here. I think he'd be here because he loves people that genuinely, authentically want to seek him. They don't have to have all their stuff figured out. They're not perfect but they're genuinely seeking to honor Him. And as we close this morning, in fact, if you would stand with me, I want to close by showing you what He's looking for. Whether it be a CR group on Monday nights or a Sunday morning group here or Bible study during the week, this is what He's looking for. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. That's what I want to be. And that's what I pray you want to be. That's what I want us to sing about and say, Lord, that's what we're trying to be. We are trying to be people whose hearts are fully committed to Him. I want to give you, we want to give you an opportunity to make sure that if you have business to take care of in this context of being fully committed to Him, that you do it right here, right now. Why not today? Again, the key word last week and again today is immediately. Why not today say, Lord, I'm all yours. We're going to sing a song. It's called, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. No turning back. You know, that day back then in that story in Mark chapter 2, there were those who made that decision immediately. They left behind what they had been pursuing and they followed Jesus. Now, there were others who chose not to. We all have choices. But I want to just invite you today, if that's you, if there is something coming between you and the Lord, why not make it right today? Why not deal with that today? Why not say, Lord, I'm all yours here right now today? There are going to be others up here with me, standing off to the side that would love to pray with you, talk with you. Um, I want to encourage you, if you would, to come forward as we sing and as we commit our lives to the Lord so that we can all remember the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Let's be that. Let's sing. Let's stand.